myself on in both ways, mentally and microphone-wise. Um, yeah, we're reading a very familiar passage where Jesus in uh, the Sermon on the Mount speaks to the disciples and calls them salt and light. And I'm sure you've read the passage before, as Mark was saying, or you've heard many different preachings. And probably what I say today won't be something new, but I hope the reminder of what it means will impact us afresh. At least that's my prayer. Um, The images, I think some churches kind of interpret this in slightly the wrong way. In case you're wondering what that is, that's the latest church building designed in Taiwan to attract more female worshippers, apparently. So I don't know if that gives you any ideas, Mark, for restyling the project a bit. Um, But what some churches do to attract others, eh? Um, What does it mean to be salt and light? Obviously not that. So let's look at this this passage, and as as we think about it, it helps just to set the context again. Uh, A few weeks ago, I was sharing about the the Lord's Prayer and just saying how the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' programmatic proclamation of what it means to be part of his kingdom. And this is right at the beginning of it too. Right after the Beatitudes, Jesus makes this declaration. And I, I want you to keep two things in mind as we go through this passage. Is that first, uh, Jesus is not saying to the disciples as individuals only, but as a group. He uses the plural noun, you collectively are the salt of the earth. You collectively are the light of the world. So what Jesus is talking about is not just let this little light of mine shine as we kind of sing as children. But as a church, as a community, how do we be salt in the earth? How are we light in the earth? It's a community thing as a group of Christians together. And secondly, this also doesn't really come out, but Jesus places a lot of emphasis on the you. You are the salt of the earth. You yourselves. And if we picture the scene, it says Jesus is beginning to teach. He's begun the Sermon on the Mount. It says he calls his disciples to him. And we know there are crowds there that have been following him because of all the miracles. But when he's teaching this, he's directing it to the disciples. You. You yourselves are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And to us, maybe that doesn't, you know, we've heard it before, so it doesn't, impact us, but for the disciples sitting there, you imagine they hadn't done anything yet, they just sort of signed up and said, I'm, I'm following Jesus. And Jesus comes in saying two things that would have really impacted them because of what they meant in that day. Really powerful statements that the spiritual elite would have claimed for themselves. The Pharisees, we're the light of the world, we know what's going on. The group that was hidden away in Qumran that I mentioned last time, this group that removed themselves to the desert. They were the holy ones waiting for the Messiah. They called themselves the sons of light. And yet here's Jesus addressing an ordinary bunch of now unemployed fishermen, tax collectors, ex-revolutionaries, and saying, you, not them, you are the light of the world. And that's how it comes across in the way Jesus says it. And I was trying to think of you know a group of people we could compare it to today, and forgive me if this offends you, but I was thinking this would be like Jesus turning up at the set of the full Monty and saying, you are the light of the world, you are the salt of the earth, a bunch of unemployed steel workers with funny accents. That's what fishermen from Galilee were like, you know, the, the poor, the uneducated, they talked funny, they weren't the, the elite in Jerusalem, if you like. And here's Jesus having the audacity to say, this group of guys in front of me is the light of the world, the salt of the earth. That's an amazing, powerful statement. 
And right at the beginning, I want us to remember that that is now applied to us. However unlikely, unworthy we feel, however dirty windows we have, we're still the light of the world. We're still the salt of the earth. And I want to, to keep that in mind as we go through what Jesus is saying here. So let's dive into the first metaphor. You are the salt of the earth. What would have come to the disciples' mind? What would they have been thinking? Well, in that time, salt was a lot more valuable than it is today. It was even used for wages for the Roman soldiers. So you get the sayings like, he's not worth his salt because he's not doing his job properly. Um, Scholars have identified at least 11 different ways that salt was a symbol in that time because of its importance. Um, Pliny, a Roman historian, says uh, there's nothing quite as useful as salt and sunshine. So salt was a really important part of life. It was considered one of the basic things you needed to live. So to call someone salt was to give an importance to people. And we're not going to go through all the 11 different ways of thinking about salt in that time, but I want to focus on the two main ones that probably come to our minds as well, and maybe, if we have time, mention a few others. The first basic thing about salt is flavoring. Um used in food. Now, some scholars say, well, the disciples wouldn't have been thinking about this. This wouldn't have been something common to the the way they ate then. Salt wouldn't have been a big deal. But I think probably scholars who've never actually had a Middle Eastern meal, if you've ever enjoyed a shawarma or a good lamb kebab, you know that flavor and salt plays a big part in it. And I've been to the Middle East a few times, and apart from the sheep's brains, the food is really good. It's really flavorful. And salt obviously plays a big part in that. Even Job, many thousands of years before Jesus, said, can you eat something tasteless without salt? It's flavorful. Natasha, who you probably know is half Mexican, keeps trying to get me to use salt on strange things like fruit. She says, if you put salt on pineapple and mango, it makes it taste better. I don't go for that myself, but apparently it draws the flavor out. So you can try that at home if you like. But salt is an amazing part of flavoring. I'm sure the cooks in here, if Mark is around, will tell me if I'm right or wrong on that. What does it mean for us to be flavor? I'm sure there's many different ways, but I'd just like to highlight three things I think that will help us. Um, Not quite there yet. The first is the, the flavor we have as showing a joyful life in the midst of whatever circumstances we're going through. If you think of Christians in the world, often the first reaction people have is, oh, here comes the party poopers, here comes Puddle Glum, here comes Eeyore, you know, run, we don't want them around with us, all the fun's going to stop. And I think, you know, when Jesus said he came to give life in all its fullness, he was talking about full life in every aspect. We're to flavor the world through our joy, our contagious joy in the midst of whatever is going on. And that's a real challenge, I know. Some people are going through very difficult circumstances, and yet we're the salt of the earth in that, through that. I also feel that it refers to our fellowship as a community. Remember I said this is a community saying, you are the salt of the earth. When people come in, what is their first reaction? Is it There's something going on here. There's something special. I want to be part of that. I don't know why, what all this Jesus stuff is, but when I'm with them, I feel like I'm attracted. I'm drawn. There's some kind of flavor pulling me in. 
the quality of our fellowship. And when, when I was uh, showing you those courses uh, that I help run called Trek, often some of the comments you hear from the, the participants is that it's like a little taste of heaven because we often have people from many different countries, languages, and we're all there focused on Christ, on his word, on how we reach out to others. And it really brings in this kind of special feel. It's a bit like a retreat maybe where you, where you go away. And I know we can't reproduce that in every Sunday service, but I feel like our community should have a flavor that draws people in as salt, as flavoring. That when they come in, they feel accepted, not rejected. They don't feel like we're judging everything they do, whether it's good or bad. That's not our role, Paul says, to judge the outsiders. We're to be accepting, welcoming. And obviously, they'll see the different values we have, but as salt, are we that flavor that attracts, or are we kind of the party poopers that push people away in judgment? And then another way I see is I think um, Colossians 4 really says it well. It says, conduct yourself wisely towards outsiders, making the most of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer May, so that you may know how you ought to answer everyone. Our conversations seasoned with salt, living wisely towards outsiders. That what's, that's what it means to be salt, to bring flavor to the world. Knowing how, as Mark was saying earlier, to be able to answer people as, as they see something different about us. Now, I'm not quite sure Jesus had this in mind. If you can't read it, it says, what does salt and light mean? And then someone is shaking salt into somebody's eyes and shining a torch and saying, if you're helping someone see their sins by shining the light of the truth on them, it's both revealing and irritating. Uh, it's true, but I don't think that's what Jesus had in mind when he said we're salt and light. I think we're not there judging the world. We're asking that we're drawing the world in through the way we live, through our, our lives, through our conduct, our seasoned speech. So salt as flavoring. It, I think the disciples would have immediately picked up on that. But probably what most scholars agree on as one of the main things behind this picture is salt as preservative. Obviously in the days pre-electricity with no refrigeration, salt was one of the main ways of preserving food. And of course the disciples, those who were ex-fishermen, would have immediately identified with this. As soon as they caught their catch and brought it in, they would have been rubbing salt into it to preserve it so they could take it to market and sell it, and it wouldn't go off straight away. And so Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You have a role in preserving the earth from decay and from going rotten. And that's a powerful image. It's not the church as a lobbying body to get its laws in place. It's just the church's role as salt, preserving what's going on around because of who we are. Nothing more, nothing less. And I think what the early church was known for, above all else, two things was their good deeds and their brotherly love. One Roman historian complains that the church is actually talking about brotherly love outside of the family, which is kind of a shock to the Roman system. How could you call someone you weren't related to a brother, that was scandalous, something you shouldn't do. And yet the church had this bond of love that spread outside of the family and was salt in society, preserving it, not decaying it. So we're the salt of the earth. And there's two ways I think we need to 
see how this works. We're not the salt of the earth if we stay inside the salt shaker. In here right now, it's wonderful fellowship. We're focusing on God's word, worshiping him. But this is not where Jesus wants us to be spending the majority of our time. We're to be out in the world. Salt, Martin Luther said, is not for itself. Salt cannot salt itself. We're the salt of the earth when we're in our jobs. We're the salt of the earth in our houses, in our neighborhoods, not in this building. And I think it's very important to remember that we need to be rubbed into the earth, if you like. You don't just shake a little bit of salt to preserve it, to preserve meat, rub it in. And if you're thinking, I'm not holy enough, I'm not spiritual enough, and I need to come here, it's probably true. But where you are in your workplace, you are being salt because you're in the world in a way that maybe a professional pastor, missionary can't be. You in your factory, you in your workplace, your school, you are being salt. And Jesus is putting you there to be an influence in that area. And you may think, well, I'm, I'm not being much of an influence. But there's a way that this works that's just part of who you are. Salt doesn't try and preserve meat, it just does. And you, in your workplace, you're maybe not necessarily sticking gospel tracts up on the wall or preaching every time you get a break, but you are being salt there. And I, don't want you to, I think it's important to remind you that, to not forget that's where you are. That's where you are salt of the earth, not in here. And it, it challenged me because you know, I'm a, a missionary and I do lots of preaching events maybe in, in terms of football and outreach. But who else am I really coming into contact on a day-by-day basis so that I can be salt? If I don't have any non-Christian friends, workmates, how am I being salt? I need to be with people who do not know Christ in order to fulfill this role. It's no good being inside the salt shaker. We also can't be salt, Jesus says. Switching. terms. If the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. Now technically, for all you science boffins out there, you know salt can't stop being salt. Salt is always salt. But the way they got salt from the Dead Sea marshes, often it would have been with a lot of impurities, so they could actually wash out the salt and just be left with a muck, a mess. And when that happened, they were just throw it out on the street in good Middle Eastern fashion, and people would walk over it. And that's what Jesus says. If we lose our saltiness, we're like that residue, that muck that has no value. It's just thrown out and trampled on. In, in the Lucan version of this saying, where Jesus obviously taught it at a different time, he says it's not even worth being put on the garbage heap. Just worthless, complete worthlessness. And so it's a strong warning that these disciples, who maybe were patting themselves on the back at this point, I'm the salt of the earth. Jesus is saying, don't lose your saltiness. 
And I think how that happens for us as a church is when we no longer stand out in any kind of way from society around us, when we've lost Christian values and a Christian message. That's when we lose our saltiness. Jesus goes on in the sermon to talk about a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees. Not just no murder, but dealing with hatred. Not just no adultery, but dealing with lust. Not just no vows, but integrity of speech. Not just no revenge, but actually helping your enemy, loving your enemy, praying for your enemy. And if you can imagine those disciples hearing that thinking, wow, that would really be salt in the earth, to be that way, to have this different set of values that stands out, that preserves the world going on around it. And as you live in your neighborhood, in your workplace, holding on to a set of values that may be at times in conflict with what's going on around you, you are being salt. You are being a preservative in that situation. And I think um, it doesn't obviously come out in English, but scholars say that behind the, um, this passage, there's a Greek, uh, well, an Aramaic pun that talk that equates losing saltiness with being foolish. And in the Greek translation of of this, they've used a word that's normally used for foolishness. Jesus uses it a little later on, saying the foolish builder is one who doesn't put Jesus' words into practice, and he uses the same root for this thing. And so what Jesus is maybe saying that the disciples would have heard, but we don't in English, is that as we lose our saltiness, we're like fools. It's becoming foolish, and it's the same root word that we get moron from, if that puts it into, into perspective for you. Darren probably like that one, saying a bit more down to earth. You're a, yeah. So Jesus is saying, don't be foolish and lose your saltiness. I mean, as a disciple... We've been called something incredible, the salt of the earth, and yet we can lose it by just blending in and becoming foolish. And in Matthew's Gospel, fools are not, it's not the village idiot, it's those who deny who God is, it's those who deny his law and refuse to obey him. And so being foolish, losing our saltiness, is disobeying, is not putting into practice, like the foolish builder, what we hear from Jesus. So as a church, if we hear all the good messages in the world, but don't put them into practice, we lose our saltiness. We're that foolish builder. And so there's an incredible blessing in being the salt of the earth and an incredible responsibility to live out what we believe. And so we have these two things. Yes, we are the salt of the earth. We're the flavor of the earth. We're the preservative. But we have this warning that goes on with it. Let's not be flavorless fools that deny God, either by our words or by our life. We are going to move on to look at being the light of the world, but I just wanted to mention one other area that salt uh, for, the, for the Jewish people would maybe have brought to mind to the disciples. And usually with metaphors, you don't want to load them with too much, but this one is so ambiguous and open-ended, according to the, the theologians, that I think we can get away with this. And we're going to do this quite quickly because for the sake of time. But in the Jewish tradition and in the Old Testament, we see that salt played a key role in the covenant and in the sacrifices. So Leviticus 2.13, the, the Jewish priests are told they always had to offer their offerings with salt, make sure that salt was always there. And it talks about the salt of the covenant. So salt had to do with sacrifice. It also had to do with permanence. Um, one of the later kings in, in 
Judah, who was fighting against the northern kingdom, said, Don't you remember that the Lord God of Israel gave the kingship over Israel forever to David and his sons by a covenant of salt? It stood for permanence. God's covenant of salt was a permanent covenant with the Davidic kingship. And so he was telling the northern king, you guys have got it wrong. And in this context of, of two kings, two, um, sorry, of um, two Chronicles 13, we see that he lists a whole list of things that the Jewish, that the Judah, the southern kingdom, was doing to follow God's law, and that the northern kingdom had lost. And so it's a context not only of God's permanent faithfulness to David, but the way that the that God's people needed to respond in faithfulness to him. So it speaks of permanence. It also speaks of purity. We see the story of Elijah purifying the spring outside of Jericho to give it good water. I've been there, and if you pay them some money, you can have some. didn't seem to work on me or purify me particularly, but it's there, and it's still there to this day. Um, it talks about the, the offering, the um, incense that was used had salt mixed with it. Um, it was pure and holy. And lastly, it also speaks of fellowship. Salt would have been put on the table as a sign of fellowship together, of friendship, of faithfulness. And so it became significant for the people of Israel as part of their friendship and their covenant faithfulness with God. So I think when we hear, you are the salt of the earth, when the disciples heard it, all those kind of things were going on in their mind. Who knows how much they picked up on which ones, but I think it's legitimate to say, you are the salt of the earth. You're the flavor of this world. You're the salt of the earth. You preserve what's going on in the earth. We need to be reminded of God's permanent covenant with us and yet live out in faithfulness, in purity, in sacrifice. And all those things come into you are the salt of the earth. But Jesus' last part of that verse really reminds us that that salt only takes effect when it's put out into the world. And if it loses its saltiness, it's not worth anything. So we need to be not just in here, but out there in people's lives. Not hiding away in our community groups, but getting into people's lives as salt. You are the salt of the earth. Jesus then goes on to say, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. You are the light of the world. It's another fairly obvious metaphor. The wicked lived in darkness. The, the people of light were those who had God's revelation, God's wisdom, and who were shining the way for others. And there's a lot of um, Old Testament tradition again there that we don't have time to look at. God was the light who led Israel out of Egypt. Um, in the Psalms Mark was reading, it talks about the light of life and how God's word is a light to us, how God himself is our light. It's really rich in insignificance. But there's a couple of things I want to pick out on. And the first is this. Ju the, the Jewish expectation was that when they were restored as a people that they would be a light to the nations. We read in Isaiah 49, in Isaiah 42 verse 6, and Isaiah 49 verse 6, Jesus, um, God speaking through Isaiah about the servant that for the Jewish people represented the nation would be 
a light to the nations. He says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. And then later on in Isaiah 60, it says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. So being light to the nations was in this expectation of the Jewish people. They were the light of the world. And again, remember, Jesus, who is Jesus saying this to? This group of unlikely disciples and fishermen sitting in front of him. So we are light to the nations. And it speaks of our role as the church of reaching out all over the world and foreshadows what Jesus will say in Matthew 28. Go into all the world and make disciples. As you read through Matthew's gospel, it seems like Jesus isn't interested in the, in the Gentiles. He keeps saying, no, I've come just for the Jews. I've just come for my people. And he sends his disciples out and says, just go to the Jews. Don't go to the Gentiles. But here, right at the beginning, he's saying, wait for it. You are this light to the nations. You're the light of the world. It'll come in its time. And it's a light for salvation to the ends of the earth. In, in Isaiah 49, it says, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. That's, that's the scope of our calling, our mission. It's not just Gloucester, it's the ends of the earth. That's an amazing thing when you think about it. Every disciple everywhere has the ends of the earth as part of their calling, however that may work out. And I like this verse in Daniel because I think it brings it together as to our role as the church. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever. That's an amazing picture of who we are to be as the church. Those who are wise bringing others to righteousness. Those who are reaching out to all the nations. And today the nations are on our doorstep. We don't have to go to Syria anymore to meet Syrians, as Andrew can tell you. They're right here with us. We can reach the nations from right where we are. And of course, this carries on through the New Testament. Jesus is introduced in John's Gospel as the light of the world. It's a major theme there. And Jesus is introduced in Matthew 4 as saying, here is a light coming to the Gentiles, to the land of Naphtali. It says Jesus comes in as the light. And then he gives this status to us, not just here, but throughout the New Testament. It talks about the church being light. And as Mark read from 2 Corinthians 4, 6, our light is first and foremost his light shining through us. So what I see here is that the disciples are being commissioned when they're being called the light of the world to go out to the nations with the gospel, with the truth, and to be this good news of God's kingdom. Now Jesus kind of expands this metaphor just to help us understand it fully. And first he talks about a city set on a hill. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. And for them, that may have brought to mind Jerusalem up on the hill with all the light around it. It may have brought to mind the limestone houses of villages that were throughout the hills that would, the light would reflect off the sunlight. And then when they would light their lamps at night, would, you would see the spots of, hill, um, of these towns in the hills. I, I was, so when I was reading this passage, I thought of this little town in, near Granada in Spain because Natasha and I, as we, uh, her, from her parents' house, we could always see in this distance this little ring of light up, seemed like on a fairly reasonable mountainy area. 
we always wondered what it was. So one day we got in our cars and drove out our car and drove out there, and we found this in the bottom is a rather dumpy old village, but at the top was this um, castle fortress type thing that was used in the days of the wars with the Arabs, and it would be a signal point that would reach to the main castle and fortress, the Alhambra in Granada. But it attracted us because we could see every night this light up on the hills, and we're like, it really drew us in. We wanted to go and see it. There's a bit of a disappointment when we did, although the, the fortress bit is, is nice. But that sense of being drawn in when you're in darkness by light. And I think we kind of have lost a bit of the significance of it because we have light everywhere in the modern world. When I grew up in Africa, it was bush lamps and the moonlight. And you really did appreciate light in that sense because you were in darkness. You had no electricity. There was no flipping of a switch. And so the disciples lived in that sense of the importance of light. And so they would have resonated with this idea of a city of a hill drawing in the traveler at night saying, if I can just get there, I'll be safe. Then he talks about a lamp being set on it. I've got my bush lamp from Africa just to bring back good memories. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. And this is a, just a very everyday metaphor. When you light a lamp, you put it there so it shines a light for everyone in the house to see. And I think it's an everyday metaphor for an everyday reality for us. Where are we light? In the simple things, in our homes. As, just, as I was preparing this message, uh, in the morning I'd really lost it with one of the boys and got completely blown up. And I was just thinking as I was preparing this, instead of being light in my home, I was a bit of darkness at that point. You could probably see it steaming out of me. And that was the opposite of what Jesus is talking about here. Bringing light in our home bringing light into my workplace, just this simple lamp. It doesn't have to be amazing things, just the very nature of who we are, bringing light with us into the darkness around us, to the lamp. St. John of the Cross says this, the followers of Jesus are to be windows through which the divine light enters the world. I think that's a powerful statement. If people don't see light from us, they won't see it anywhere else. We're God's light shining into the world. But I think the real emphasis that Jesus places on this second metaphor is the fact that we shouldn't be hiding away that light. He says, no one puts a light, lights a light and then hides it under a basket. And when you think about the disciples' context, Jesus has just told them, you're going to be persecuted for my sake. And we know the history of the early church. Every time they shone their light, they were dragged off to prison. They were beaten. And the temptation to hide away must have been very strong. And I have to get one Bonhoeffer quote in a week, or a sermon, for Phil. And it says, Flight into the invisible is a denial of the call. A community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow him. And I think we all feel that kind of awkwardness, except for Mike, when we're sharing with others maybe about Jesus. That sense of, oh, I'm going to be a right wally if I say something now. That's that temptation to hide the light. And I'm not saying we're obnoxious like the cartoon throwing salt in people's eyes, shining the torch in their eyes, but there is that temptation to just keep quiet instead of speaking out when God prompts us. And Jesus is saying, you know what? You are the light, but don't hide it under a bushel. And this is really the main emphasis of this second half of what Jesus says. 
So let your good let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. I know as English we probably shy away from this whole idea of being seen before men, let your light shine and all that sounds a bit look at me-ish and we don't like to do that in England. But Jesus is not talking about public acts of spirituality. In fact, in the next chapter, he tells off the Pharisees because they go around saying, look at me, look at my prayers, look at my fasting, look at my giving. He's saying, no, I'm not talking about your acts of spirituality. That's between you and God. That's your private devotions. But I'm talking about your good deeds that glorify God. People see what you do and say, why on earth are you doing that? It must, it's something different. It must come from someone else. And so they glorify the good deeds, the things you're doing in the world. So good works glorify God, Jesus says. So this is about good deeds that give glory to God, not our own piety being put on show. Closet Christianity, one commentator says, and self-directed service are excluded. And just the other day, um, a Christian magazine arrived on our doorstep and had this on the front cover. Light in the darkness, how Lebanon's Christian believers are bringing hope to Syria's Muslim refugees. If that's quite an impact if you think of the situation there. The Syrians have always been the oppressors, particularly of the Christians in Lebanon. And yet now these Muslim refugees are coming through and, the, and they were sharing in the article how the Lebanese Christians at first found it hard to say, yes, let's help these people because they were the enemy. And yet God has convicted them and the churches are the ones offering a lot of the help for the over a million Syrian refugees in one country in Lebanon already had refugees, the Palestinians, and yet the church is reaching out and there's testimonies of Muslims coming to Christ because of what the church is doing for them, offering them shelter, offering them hope, food, out of their own poverty. And that good deed is what has transformed those people's lives. So good works, people will see it and give glory to God in heaven. And I think there a lot of, we could, dive into a lot of the, the New Testament and see how light is used about the church. We don't have time here, but I think it comes out very clearly in passages such as 1 Peter 2, Ephesians 5, Philippians 2, that our lifestyle, how we are, who we are, our words is light to the world. And there's the challenge that on the one hand Paul says, you are light, and on the other hand he says, therefore, Live like children of light. Philippians 2, don't grumble, don't argue. Be pure and innocent, shining like stars in front of a, a gener an evil generation. Ephesians 5, once you were darkness, but now in the Lord you are light. Live as children of light. And he says the fruit of light is good, well, everything that's good and right and true. Be careful how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise. So there's that sense that being the light of the world puts a responsibility on us to live out that light in front of others, our good deeds and our lifestyle. And I'll close with this thought, oh, and love. I'll close with this thought. Jesus goes on and talks further about the light in us. And he does it in a way that warns us again, because he talks about the light in us being darkness. He says, if the light in you is darkness, later on in Luke 8, Luke 11, using the same idea of the lamp in the house, he says, if the light in you is darkness, 
how great is that darkness? And I think there's a real emphasis that as Christians we can, as Natasha was saying, be very dirty vessels that the light barely shines out of. And with that bush lamp, one of my jobs as a kid in Africa, and I probably complained as much about my chores as my boys do today, but I've blanked it out, was cleaning bush lamps because it's a kerosene lamp. It's got a bit of a dirty flame. And after two or three days, it's basically blackened. And so you had to pop out the glass, give it a good scrub, trim the wick. And of course, my brother and I hated doing it. But the light would be obscured by the darkness. And I think that sense that if through sin, through disobedience, through lack of love for others, we can obscure the light that the church should be to the world, individually and as a community. So if the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? What is darkness? It's the absence of light. What is darkness in the world? It's the absence of Christians shining for Christ. And that's a real challenge. As I've been preparing this, I've been challenged on lots of different levels. Who am I being salt to? Who am I being light to? What non-Christian can look at my life and say, wow, something he's doing makes me really think about God. And as a church, we can say the same thing. Who are we being salt to? Where have we been put as light, as a city on a hill that can't be hidden? Where are our good deeds? What are they that is drawing the community to say, you know what, something's going on there. So I I feel like God has spoken to me and said, you can be a missionary all you like, but if you're not being salt and light in your own community, in what's going on here, somehow you're missing a trick. And so I feel like God is speaking to me, yes, you are the salt of the earth. You are the earth's preservative, the earth's flavor. You are bringing light to the world. You are the light of the world. Just because I am in you, but don't lose your saltiness. Don't darken the light and not let it shine. So it's, an, it's two amazing images that Jesus speaks to this group of motley disciples. And he speaks to us as Abbey Church. You, Abbey Church, are the light of the world. You, Abbey Church, are the salt of the earth. So let's live that out.